It's the early 1980s in the Hakohodo office, Tokyo, Japan. And Toshio Suzuki is nervous. He wouldn't know this, but you would. In 30 years' time, he would become one of the most successful producers in the world. But all Suzuki knew back then was the pressing need to secure funding for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. The door to this critical meeting had been opened by an unlikely ally, Hayao Miyazaki's youngest brother, an employee at Hakuhodo. Word had spread fast in the office corridors thanks to his tireless championing of the film's potential. Despite being an advertising and PR firm, far from the movie business, Hakuhodo found the buzz hard to ignore. They took a leap of faith, tempted by the possibility of being part of something big. Now, with the weight of Miyazaki and his enthusiastic brother's expectations on his shoulders, Suzuki knew he couldn't afford to slip up. Inside the immaculate Hakuhodo office, Suzuki sat opposite the Hakuhodo team the sprawling Tokyo skyline painting a backdrop of limitless potential. I've heard promising things about Nausicaa. A member of the Hakuhodo team initiated, curiosity lacing their words. The plot, the animation, we heard it's going to be bold and unique. Suzuki, his nerves veiled behind a mask of professionalism, nodded. Uh, Thank you. Miyazaki's creativity is indeed unparalleled. But we'll need some tangible numbers. How's the manga, Suzuki? How's it performing? A pause. Suzuki, amidst the silence, was flustered. It's 50,000. Suzuki thought to himself, but his lips remained tight. The real numbers didn't sound attractive at all. What if Hakuhodo walks away from the table? Perhaps he should conjure up an audacious number, get their buy-in first, then try to deliver the results. What's a good multiplier? Two times? Five times? Suzu, half a million copies. He blurted out. The Hakuhodo team exchanged quick glances. Whispers and subtle nods were exchanged among them, while Suzuki felt a lump form in his throat, the weight of his claim settling in. All right, Suzuki, we're on board. A team member declared, offering a firm handshake. But the feeling of victory was tinged with apprehension for Suzuki. Once the handshake was over and the Hakuhodo team exited, The vastness of the office seemed to magnify the silence, leaving Suzuki alone with his thoughts and the echoes of commitment. Oh no, what have I promised? (sighs) That day, Toshio Suzuki wouldn't know this, but you would. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind would become one of the most successful productions in animated history. From 1UP Media, 
This is Empires, episode three of a five-part series, The Sea of Decay. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind revolves around a young Princess Nausicaa who reveals the pollutant's role in a dystopian future, all while resolving conflict and fulfilling a prophecy. The first volume opens with an ominous line. The Sea of Decay was the new world, an ecological system born in the polluted wastelands created by civilizations long past. Only the great insects could live amongst the giant fungi and miasmas they exhaled. And so, the earth was slowly submerging beneath that decaying sea. In hindsight, Hayao Miyazaki wouldn't know that creating the feature film would feel like wading through the sea of decay. Day by day, he and his team would struggle to survive, and they remained forever changed after the production. But the journey to get to film, curiously, starts off as a manga series. According to Suzuki, they had wanted to pitch a Hayao Miyazaki film, but their boss, the president of Tokuma Shoten, insisted on a film based on an existing work. To secure the film, both Miyazaki and Suzuki decided that a manga released on Animage, a magazine owned by Tokuma Shoten, should do the trick. In 1982, Animage's February issue unveiled the world of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. The buzz was immediate prompting a spike in demand that led to an extra 20,000 magazine copies. Seeing the hype, the president of Tokuma Shoten felt a short five-minute film pilot for the manga was in order. Yet Miyazaki resisted, convinced the story couldn't be squeezed into such a short span. The initial idea expanded gradually, from five minutes then to 10, until they settled on making a feature film. Miyazaki was on board, but he had one stipulation. Leaning in, he confided in Suzuki. To pull this off, we need Isao Takahata as my producer. Suzuki pondered, thinking, They're friends, right? This should be straightforward. Little did he know he was in for a challenge. The next week, Suzuki paid Takahata a visit at the production house, where he was working on Chie the Brat. Suzuki stepped in, the anticipation of the forthcoming project causing an animated gleam in his eyes. He was there to make a proposition he thought 
Takahata couldn't refuse. Takahata-san? I hope I'm not interrupting. Takahata looked up, offering a polite smile. Not at all, Suzuki-san. What brings you here? As they settled into the conversation, Suzuki unveiled the burgeoning world of Nausicaa. His words painted a vivid image of the magnificent universe they were about to bring to life. We're working on something exceptional, Takahata-san. Miyazaki has envisioned Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. And we believe, with you as a producer, this could be transformative. Suzuki proposed, the eagerness apparent in his voice. Takahata paused. His silence filled the room. And Suzuki, surprised, had expected Takahata to agree instantly. After a moment that seemed to stretch to eternity, Takahata responded, his voice calm and deliberate. I am honored, Suzuki-san, but I must decline. The refusal hit Suzuki like a cold wave. He hadn't expected resistance, especially not from Takahata. Likely confused, Suzuki inquired, but was met with no clear answer. Fine. If you need me to show that we really need you, I will. Suzuki might have thought, undeterred and determined to visit him every day. Two weeks of unwavering persistence later, Takahata handed Suzuki a handwritten notebook one afternoon. Every page was a journey into Takahata's profound reflections on all the producers he had met and their differences. Suzuki read the concluding lines aloud. That's why producing doesn't suit me. Takahata's statement meant that because of his deep knowledge of producers, he had realized he most definitely would not suit the role. The finality in those words struck Suzuki. It was more than a no. It was a door firmly closed. Dejected, Suzuki returned to Miyazaki. I've tried Miyazaki-san. He started, the weight of rejection anchoring his words. I've presented every angle, every perspective. But Takahata-san, he's immovable. Miyazaki absorbed the words, his gaze distant. Miyasan? Suzuki ventured breaking the silence. Do we absolutely need Takahata as the producer? It was a bold question. A question that challenged the initial condition set by Miyazaki himself. The silence continued as Miyazaki's gaze seemed to stretch for miles before a realization hit him. <sighs> Let's grab a drink, Suzuki-san. Down by the bar, Miyazaki spoke little until the sake arrived. With eyes still a little distant, he picked up the bottle and began pouring a glass for himself, downing it straight. Then he continues, over and over again. 
Suzuki was shocked. Should he speak to Miyazaki? He didn't know what to do and observed how the bottle gradually finished. Aye. The now red-faced Miyazaki mumbled. Suzuki leaned in, realizing the tears were softly falling out of his eyes. He had never seen his friend in despair and probably feared what would follow next. <sighs> I devoted my youth to Takahata, but he has never done anything for me. When the night was over, Suzuki took one last detour back to Takahata's place. Suzuki's footsteps echoed with determination as he reached Takahata's doorstep. A mix of the sake's influence and Miyazaki's raw, unveiled emotions fueled his insistence. He couldn't let it end like this. Not when he had seen a side of Miyazaki that was usually veiled behind the poise of a determined artist. Takahata-san. Suzuki began, the edge in his voice unmistakable. I need you to reconsider. Nausicaa, you have to be the producer. But Takahata was unwavering. Suzuki-san, no. It's like I told you the other day. I'm not suitable to be a producer. Maybe it was the sake... But Suzuki could feel his temper rising, patience wearing thin. The quiet strength Takahata always carried, once admirable, now seemed simply selfish. He knew the respect and adoration Miyazaki held for Takahata. If roles were reversed, Miyazaki wouldn't have hesitated. With a voice unexpectedly raised, Suzuki said, Miyasan wants you to be the producer. He's asking that you be the producer. Are you refusing to help a friend in need? Suzuki knew this hit Takahata hard. His eyes flickered before his voice, softer now, broke the silence. Okay. All right. I understand. By Suzuki's account, it was the only time he'd ever raised his voice at Takahata, marking the start of his career in production and his tutelage under Takahata. The wisdom of Miyazaki's choice became clear in the ensuing days. While many saw Takahata as a relaxed director, lacking urgency in his planning, his skills as a producer were undeniable. He was suddenly a force, methodically orchestrating every detail. He spearheaded the hunt for a workspace, handpicked staff, and strategically lightened Miyazaki's load. His budgeting approach was meticulous, breaking down costs from individual drawings, ensuring accuracy in every estimate. He also demanded standardized procedures for every artist, group, and scene emphasizing workflow efficiency and maintaining quality. With Takahata taking charge of production, Suzuki could focus on securing more resources. 
This led him to negotiations with Toei for distribution and Hakuhodo for financing. By the 31st of May, 1983, the team plunged into pre-production, setting an aggressive goal to release their film by the 11th of March, 1984, just nine months away. It's the summer of 1983, and Hayao Miyazaki was brought into a room at the insistence of Tokuma Shoten. They needed him to meet a potential composer, Joe Hisaishi. Both wouldn't know this yet, but you would. The pair would form one of the most lucrative partnerships that Japan has ever seen. Under the humming lights of the meeting room, Hayao Miyazaki's eyes sparkled with an energy that was infectious. Seated across him was Joe Hisaishi, a young man with a contemplative demeanor. Joe, with his gentle aura, seemed to be in stark contrast to the whirlwind of excitement that was Miyazaki. Before Joe could even get settled, Miyazaki, unable to contain his enthusiasm, began. Let me introduce you to the characters I've crafted for Nausicaa. This here... He pointed animatedly to a drawing. ...is the toxic jungle. And over here, this magnificent creature is the Omu. Joe's eyes widened, initially taken aback by Miyazaki's fervor. But as Miyazaki delved deeper into the lore, intricacies, and motivations of each character, Joe found himself drawn into the world being painted before him. And then, in a fit of sheer exhilaration, Miyazaki found himself standing on his chair, hands waving dramatically as he reenacted scenes, bringing to life the winds of the Valley of the Wind and the devastating movements of the Omu. Joe, now fully engrossed, began visualizing the music, the themes, and the emotions that could accompany these tales. A musical score began taking shape in his mind. Before they realized it, two hours had passed. Here's what we have so far. Miyazaki handed over intricate drawings. Do what you think is right. In Joe's own words, his odd first encounter with Miyazaki was revealing, highlighting Miyazaki's genuine childlike enthusiasm. Jumping into action, Joe crafted what insiders term an image album, a set of preliminary music inspired by concept art and early production materials. These albums typically evolve into soundtracks if they resonate. Not long after, Joe presented Miyazaki with a song, which many now recognize as the days long gone, filled with youthful melodies and a sense of longing. Miyazaki was instantly captivated. Rumor has it he played that tune on loop, drawing inspiration for writing, sketching, and directing. This newfound workflow defined the collaboration between Studio Ghibli and Joe Hisaishi, the studio's go-to composer. Their routine, now honed to perfection, begins with a basic storyboard and 10 descriptive phrases about the film. From this, Joe crafts an image album, about 10 tracks, 
each roughly mirroring a descriptor or image. Distinctively, Miyazaki would immerse himself in these tracks as he animated, letting the music guide him. Close to a film's completion, Joe would be looped back in, now with a fuller understanding of the movie, to shape the final soundtrack. Joe's involvement is notably hands-on, a stark contrast to traditional Western film score methods. In the West, music composition is typically segmented. Composers sketch and orchestrators fine-tune. But at Studio Ghibli, Joe's touch is felt throughout, from initial composition to final orchestration, ensuring flexibility. The result? Studio Ghibli scores are more adaptive and dynamic. In Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the score of The Days Long Gone is varied to fit different scenes. The original pop version for childhood memories, a synthetic cello and flute version for mystical connections with insects, and a child's voice rendition expressing nostalgia and the character's human fragility. While the scoring was underway, the rest of Nausicaa was facing major issues. By the end of 1983, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind was in trouble. Despite partnering with Topcraft, a leading production house, the film lagged behind schedule. Topcraft had a team of elite animators, some focusing on bugs, and others capturing the dynamic movement of planes. Much of the delay came from Miyazaki's personal ambition. He wanted to elevate animation, not just adapt a manga. Driven to innovate, the movie adopted techniques like underlighting and diffusion filters for nightmarish scenes, and a gondola-like device to add depth. For Miyazaki, Nausicaa had to be pristine. This commitment began to consume him, eating into nights, weekends, and every waking hour. Suzuki, sensing Miyazaki's relentless pursuit of perfection, sounded an urgent call for more animators in October 1983. Two more studios answered the call along with many independent talents, bringing their total crew to 30. But as the team grew, a new challenge emerged. The film's unique style started to fray. Without ample time to immerse all the new animators in Miyazaki's vision, inconsistencies crept in. Sleep-deprived, Miyazaki struggled to realign each frame. Time constraints soon forced their hand. Complex fight sequences were scaled down to brief flashes, and the sweeping crowd scenes vanished. Yet another hurdle awaited. Who would animate the climax? The finale of Nausicaa promised a mechanical behemoth unleashing fiery devastation upon a horde of insects. To Miyazaki, 
he was convinced that the success of the entire movie hinged on this one moment. Just when all seemed bleak, Hideaki Anno stepped into the scene, responding to the call for animators. Like Miyazaki, Anno had a strong personality, apparently reaching Animage and shoving his storyboard for Miyazaki to assess. Miyazaki was immediately struck by the brilliance of Anno's designs, deeming him a prodigious animator. Relieved to have found the right person for the job, Miyazaki entrusted Anno with the pivotal scene, but not without whispering. If the film fails, it is your fault. For over two months, Anno threw himself into the project. His colleagues often found him sleeping under his desk, feet poking out, even as cockroaches scurried past. In the end, his contribution led to one of the most incredible scenes in Nausicaa, and left Miyazaki singing praises. It was a very luxurious collaboration. Looking back, Miyazaki's trust was well-placed. After all, Anno would go on to mastermind iconic Evangelion series. By early 1984, the production seemed on track, but a surprise twist was lurking. Rewind a few months, and the original Nausicaa script was a marathon, stretching beyond three hours. Despite pressures, the scriptwriter couldn't trim it down and eventually stepped away. Miyazaki, under time constraints, made some cuts and dove into production, leaving the finale up in the air. With the end of production in sight, the million-dollar question surfaced. How should the movie conclude? Originally, Nausicaa was destined to die. But Suzuki and Takahata found the idea too bleak. It lacks a cathartic release, they argued. Amidst the discussion and a ticking clock, the decision was made. Spoiler alert, to spare Nausicaa. Though weary, Miyazaki accepted the change. But years later, he'd reflect on the ending with some regret, feeling it sidestepped the narrative's deeper complexities, skewing towards an almost Disney-like simplicity. In fact, he'd later grade his own film a 65 out of 100, while Takahata, ever the critic, gave it a mere 30. With the plot finally set, the team faced another challenge. All illustrations were complete by mid-February, moving the process to coloring. Normally, this would be a three-month task, but the release was set for March 11th. The coloring team had their work cut out for them, with less than a month to go. Desperate times called for desperate measures. Stories of staff enduring three-day office stints emerged, and helpers were enlisted from all corners, including Takahata's wife and even magazine editors.
Finally, in March 1984, Nausicaa was ready for the world. This journey had demanded 56,000 drawings, 263 unique colors, and spanned nine months. The cost? A hefty 180 million yen, close to 1 million US dollars, one of the most expensive of its time. Yet, upon its release, Nausicaa raked in nearly four times its production cost, selling around a million tickets in Japan alone. It was nothing short of a sensation. Interestingly, the film covered just a quarter of the manga's narrative, which would continue unfolding for another decade. Internationally, the film caught eyes, but it also ignited controversy. Studio Ghibli's partnership with New World Pictures led to Warriors of the Wind, a redubbed and restructured version, cut 30 minutes shorter and pitched as a kid's movie. This iteration was ill-received, tarnishing the original's reputation and cementing Hayao Miyazaki's stance against altering his films. With the film's release, the Nausicaa team emerged transformed. Miyazaki, in particular, bore the scars deeply. I have to tell you something as a friend. I made a movie, but I lost all kinds of friends. I don't want that kind of life. It was really difficult, making it into a movie, I mean. <laughs> it was agony. The whole time, I thought I was on the brink of disaster. By the time the movie was finished, I was really crazy. He even claimed to have drawn strength from a near spiritual experience. Ironically, he would go on to direct at least 10 more films that would easily triple in the number of frames needed. Perhaps the most significant aftermath of Nausicaa was its influence on Miyazaki's relationship with Tokuma Shoten, paving the way for the birth of a new division. When Topcraft, the studio behind Nausicaa, folded, its animators rallied behind Miyazaki, giving rise to Studio Ghibli. However, the path ahead wasn't going to be smooth. Tokuma Shoten expected the newly formed Ghibli to stand on its own two feet. And in a twist of fate, the funds from Nausicaa were squandered on a botched documentary project. This left Studio Ghibli financially vulnerable. The team would have to break its neck creating at least four more movies before Studio Ghibli could ever wish to hold itself up financially. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, Episode 3 of a five-part series, Sea of Decay. Next on Empires, brace yourself for an accelerating journey with Studio Ghibli. We'll dive deep into its meteoric rise, exploring the groundbreaking films they released, 
and the ingenious promotional tactics that even outshone international blockbusters like Jurassic Park in Japan. Follow us so you won't miss out on episode 4 of our five-part series, Before Spirited. is a one-up media original produced and written by Guangjin edited by Alex audio experience by Ethan Sam additional engineering by Ashley from one-up media and narrated by Luis Cruz and Claire Bernal international research by Sonia Kuyet and Jamin from one-up media a quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations while we can't know exactly what they say think or feel at the moment It is all based on research. Thank you for listening.